0: Dialogue. A journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue.
1: Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue.
2: Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary. Dialogue.
1: Welcome to the Dialogue podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, and in this episode, we're thrilled to present BYU professor Stephen C. Harper, perhaps the foremost living expert on Joseph Smith's first vision an event that's very much on the minds of church members of all leanings, particularly because this year marks its 200th anniversary. This podcast was recorded at a meeting of the miller Eccles Study Group held in our home on January 10, 2020. It was extremely well attended. There were about 85 people in our home, which stretched our capacity to the limits. In fact, we ran out of chairs and latecomers sat on the staircase to the second floor. I mention this merely to illustrate how much this subject is on the minds of the members of the Church. I think you'll enjoy this podcast, and if you do, we hope you'll consider a Dialogue membership. Within the last year, we've made every article ever published by Dialogue free online, as well as all the podcasts we've done since we began recording them. And if you haven't subscribed to our podcast, be sure to do so through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please understand that we depend on the generosity of our donors to ensure the continued vitality of the premier Mormon Studies Journal. Please go online to dialoguejournal.com and visit our revamped website and consider the various membership options. And now to our podcast, which was recorded on January 10, 2020. We're gonna be privileged to hear from Dr. Stephen Harper, Professor of Church History and Doctrine at Brigham Young University. Steve is also the Managing Historian and a General Editor of Saints, The Story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. And that's the new approved history of the church and I hope all of you have already either read it or started to read it. It's kind of the thing that you're supposed to be doing at home during that third hour that you're not in church. Stephen earned his MA in American History from Utah State University and a PhD in Early American History from Lehigh University. And no, that's not spelled L-E-H-I. Steve is a volume editor of the Joseph Smith Papers and has authored several books and many papers on various (laughs) subjects relating to Mormon history. He is the go-to LDS expert on Joseph Smith's First Vision. His most recent book was published by Oxford University Press in 2019 and was titled First Vision, Memory, and Mormon Origin. And that's the subject of his presentation today. I'll turn the time over to Dr. Parker.
2: Thanks very much. It's terrific to be here. I'm grateful for the hospitality of the Thurston's and of, of all of you, and I'm really excited to speak about the First Vision. I hope you can hear me. Uh, am I projecting okay, or do I need to? It has become common, as you may know, to account for variety in Joseph Smith's First Vision accounts by saying that he intended them for different audiences and however true that may be, I don't think it's the best explanation for the variations in the accounts, and tonight I want to propose what I believe is a better one, based on intimate knowledge of all of the vision accounts, in light of what is known about the way that memories consolidate, or form and reform over time. So uh, we'll use this uh, analogy. To me, the best thing about the Harry Potter stories is what's called the Pensieve, it's a magical bowl of memories in which an observer can bury their face and sift through another person's past. It's a very exciting idea to a historian. I wish this actually existed. I would buy one on Amazon if I could. The Harry Potter wiki site says, the pensive is an object used to review memories. It has the appearance of a shallow stone or metal basin. It is filled with a silvery substance, memories. Uh, that appear to be like a cloud-like liquid or gas. This is the collected memories of people who have siphoned their recollections into it. The name pensive is a homonym of pensive, meaning deeply and seriously thoughtful, but it's also a pun. The sieve part is uh, alluding to the object's function of sorting meanings from a mass of thoughts or memories. So today we're going to come as close as we possibly can to looking in the pensive at Joseph Smith's memories of his first vision and this is the way we'll do it we'll use the historical method of analyzing all of the available evidence that was created by the person whose mind we want to inhabit and we'll do it uh, informed as much as possible by the science of memory we should be aware from the outset that we'll be up against a lot of obstacles we have both an abundance of evidence and a lack of evidence We have lots of what Joseph Smith thought, and from another perspective, we have almost nothing of what he thought. And we have a lot of inherent biases. We won't even be aware of or able to conquer most of them, but we'll do the best we can. We should be aware of the problem that some neuroscientists uh, use the acronym W-Y-S-I-A-T-I to describe what you see is all there is. This is a bias of human beings, and it, uh, it, it makes us think that the very little a bit of data that we can observe is all there is to know. And uh, it's very difficult to overcome that, uh, to even be aware of it. But we should do our very best in anything we study, and especially when we study the first vision. So here are some things we know. Here are some things we know that we know. We have four primary and five contemporary secondary accounts of the vision. Four that Joseph Smith left us, that he wrote or caused to be written during his lifetime, and five that were written by contemporaries of his who heard him tell the vision and who wrote it down while he was still alive. There are some things we know that we don't know. We don't know who and what Joseph told about his vision in the days right after it. And there are lots of things that we don't know that we don't know, and I don't have any examples of that. (laughs) For the next uh, time we're together here, try to forget that you've ever heard of Joseph Smith or his first vision. I'm worried about this part because I'm going to actually assume quite a bit of knowledge of this stuff, but at the same time it'll be useful if you can suspend the assumption if you have it that you know all about it that you've you've heard everything there is to know let's have some fun discovering the rich documentary record of it as if for the very first time <coughs> we're going to ask the historical record some seeking questions uh this is a question asked by dan Vogel. this is a declarative question what uh what the great um one, one great historian called a declarative question, meaning it assumes its own answer. This is not a great example of a great question, in my opinion, but it's a useful one to analyze. Uh, In his biography of Joseph Smith, Dan Vogel asks, when Smith fails to mention foundational visions until years after the event and gives conflicting and anachronistic accounts of them, how certain can one be that he relates events as he experienced them at the time? I don't, I'm not, sure exactly how to answer that question, but I can say this with great confidence. The accounts of Joseph Smith's vision are not only memories of how he experienced the vision at the time, they are accounts of how he experienced the vision over time. And that's quite crucial to understand. Uh, One reason that they don't all say the same thing in the same way is because Joseph is interpreting his experience over time. And he's capable of saying different things about it at different times in his life um, and incapable at other times in his life. It's one reason why we get variations in the accounts. I want to um, invite you to decide for yourself if the accounts are conflicting and anachronistic. I don't agree with, I don't think it's a, a given, that the accounts of the first vision are conflicting with each other, and that they're out of historical order. Uh, that's a given for Dan Vogel, but I'm, uh, I would like to be more open to see for myself if that's the conclusion I come to once I've evaluated all the evidence for a long, long time in context. In other words, this case is a little too closed for me. The case is more open in my mind than Vogel uh, here makes it sound. Okay, so I don't have a great answer to the question. I think we need a better question before we dig into uh, what what can become pretty good answers, I think, over time. As we do that, it's really quite important that we don't make assumptions about memory that are not well-founded. So let me say that memory is not what we often assume it is. Memory is not like a DVD or a file in a file cabinet. Memory is not like a recording that you put down and then you go back to it and replay it, and it's the same every time. Great scholars of memory, including Professor Schachter at Harvard and many others, have shown conclusively that memories like the memories of Joseph's account of his accounts of his first vision are made in real time. They're not stored artifacts. They, they're made out of what Professor Schachter calls traces, uh, which nobody really knows or understands much about, but it's clear that these that these pieces of of memory or stuff that gets t- shaped into memory somehow exist in us. We store them, we encode them. But when we have a memory, we make it right then and there. We make it out of traces and we make it because it's cued by some something or other. Some some event, some thought, some smell sometimes causes the creation right then and there of a memory. So a memory is made out of the past and the present. That's very vital to understand. Every autobiographical memory you have, every, every time you remember your past in one way or another, you're doing it right then and there. You're making a fresh memory and you're making it because of something that's happening right then and there. And you're going back and recuperating pieces of the past and you're putting them together in a new way that's never been done quite that way before. It's it's an original memory. Okay, this I had been reading lots about this and trying hard to understand it, and I finally understood it one day when I was watching our son play with a new set of Legos. He was down on the floor, and he Jennifer had gotten him one of those boxes, the smaller boxes, and it has the picture on on the front, and it shows what you can make. And so he made that thing, just like the box showed. Then he took it apart, and he made another thing. Very it, but different. And he didn't use all the pieces. Some of the pieces were laying around. Then he took it apart, and he did it again. And I thought, that is like the accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision. The accounts are made out of tr- the traces, at least some of them, that exist in Joseph Smith's mind. But he remakes them every time. Every time he remembers the first vision, it's a new composition. He does it based on what's happening right then and there and what happened in the past. So how certain can we be that he gives us uh, the events as he experienced them at the time? I don't know. How in the world can I figure that out positively? I'm not sure. Okay, without being God, I can't judge that for ultimate certainty but I am very, very confident that Joseph gives us the experience as he experienced it over time. I don't know any reason to doubt that he's telling us what happened to him as, ver- as best he possibly can. He's up against very difficult problems. It defied all description. And every time he starts telling it in an autobiography, the first thing he does is apologizes for how, incapable he is at doing it. So he is hes very concerned about the limits that are on him and being able to express what happened to him. So I think it's quite possible that he, he's not great at giving us what happened to him, and I don't know if anybody would be any better. He's doing the best he can with what he has, but I think it is safe to say he's giving us the, the event as he experiences it throughout his life. And I'm thrilled that we have accounts from 1832, 35, 38, 39, and 42. If I could have written a script, that's how I would have done it, because it lets a historian watch him remember throughout his life. And I can, I can trace his memories and analyze how he makes them out of the past and the present that he's in. Any questions at this point? It might seem counterintuitive, uh, what I'm trying to say here, that a memory is made in the present. A memory is not a product of the past that gets stored away and then just pulled out and reviewed. A memory is made in the present, out of the past and the present. It might seem counterintuitive, but that doesn't make it false. Lots of good memory research has proven it to be true. So given that way of thinking about memory, let's ask what was the present that gave us each of Joseph Smith's first vision accounts? And besides that, I'm going to posit a hypothesis. I have a strong feeling that one of the most important determinants of Joseph's ability To talk about his first vision. One of the things that shapes the accounts most is the Methodist minister's rejection of Joseph's experience. Right? Uh, the, The 1838 39 account, the one that is excerpted in the Pearl of Great Price, tells us that a few days after the vision, Joseph happened to be in company with a Methodist minister who had been influential in creating the religious excitement. And Joseph took the occasion to report his vision to him and was greatly surprised that the minister received it with contempt and rejected the vision, telling Joseph there are no such things as visions nowadays. There haven't been since the days of the apostles. It's all of the devil. Don't even believe it. That event, I believe, was very important in um, Joseph's ability to tell the vision subsequent to that. I think it had a major impact on clamming him up for, the better, uh, for, for more than a decade about the vision. And I believe that then when he did tell it after that, at least in situations where he's strategically remembering, and I'll talk more about that as we go along, I believe that he can't form a strategic memory of the vision without uh, in some way responding to the Methodist minister. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by all of that. Let me start this way. In other words, what would happen if Joseph Smith was so deeply wounded? Remember, he's 14. And he does not expect to be rejected. He expects to be validated. He thinks he had finally a Methodist conversion experience. Right? He tells in one of the secondary accounts that we have, he tells his friends just a month before Joseph's (coughs) murdered, he tells some intimate friends, that uh, he went to the Methodist revival meetings and he wanted to feel and shout like the rest of the people who were becoming converted, but I could feel nothing. Okay? So think about that. Uh, he's trying very hard to find redemption from his sinfulness. Remember that the context here is Calvinistic. That's the overlay. So the, the idea that he is totally depraved, and, and any salvation that will come to him will be unconditional. There's nothing he can do about it. Um, and that's a terrible, terrible thought, but that's the, the thought. That's what's in his head. Okay? Um, he hopes that's not true. He hopes it's wrong. He hopes the Presbyterians are wrong. But he has no evidence. Okay? He's on the search for evidence that there's something he can do to affect salvation through Christ. But I wanted to feel and shout like the rest of the Methodist converts, but I could feel nothing. So in my heart, I'm partial to Methodism. They're telling me there's something I can do about it. I can come to Christ, yearn for him to save me, feel his grace, uh, fill me up, and be redeemed. But when I try that, it doesn't work. Okay? So heartfelt Methodism, but no evidence. Uh, in his head, he's convicted of his sins. He knows that 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 fallen nature, that's an accurate description of him, the same way the Presbyterians describe it. And so he fears that his, his, the, the, the dominant idea, at least the old-fashioned idea of the Calvinist Presbyterians, is right. You see what I'm saying? He's got a dilemma, an awful dilemma between his head and his heart. And he wants his heart to be right. He wants Methodism to be right, but he fears all the evidence is telling him that the Presbyterians are right. Okay? What would happen if that's the situation that he's in as a teenager and he finally, finally experiences a conversion like other Methodists, he thinks. Right? A father and the Son appear, that's not unheard of in his context. Other people are going into the woods and praying and seeing visions, uh, having the Father or the Son or both sometimes uh, appear to them, comfort them, or send an angel to comfort them, or just send the Holy Spirit to wash over them. He's he's not thinking, I am the most unique teenager ever. I will be the prophet of the last dispensation. When he comes out of the grove, he's thinking, finally, finally, I, I can feel and shout like the rest. I'm going to go tell the minister. He tells the minister, and he's shocked when he's rejected. He expected to be validated, and instead his vision is rejected. I believe that hurt very much. I believe this psychological pain and trouble that causes him is a major reason that he clams up for a good long time, and he thinks a lot about what all this means. Right? The fact that he doesn't talk about it much doesn't mean that he's not thinking about it a lot. And so I think that when he does tell the vision, he can't help but deal with that trauma, with that rejection from the minister. So what would happen if Joseph was so deeply wounded by the minister's rejection that he did not tell anyone else? There is no evidence in the historical record that he tells anyone else. And I know we have pageants and movies and other things to show he goes right home and tells mom and dad. And we, we might assume that, but assuming it doesn't make it true. There's no evidence in the historical record that he tells anyone else. His earliest autobiography says, I could find no one who would believe the heavenly vision. So if he does tell anybody else, apparently they don't believe. There's no reason to think he tells anybody but that minister for years. What would happen if... Then finally, at age 26, he decides, because the Lord has told him to, in certain terms, repeatedly, that he's got to write it down. He's got to record it. So he's got a dilemma. I can't write. I'm terrible at explaining what's inexplainable, and I've got a commandment to write it down. With that dilemma, he finally decides he's got to do it, and this is a few months after being beaten and Tard in March of 1832. In that circumstance, what would happen is what Professor Schachter calls strategic retrieval. In other words, if I sit down intentionally to write my story, the cue for my memory is going to be the strategy of, of writing my story. That's what's going to be the present circumstance that produces the memory. I'm going to search my mind for the traces of the past. Let's see, what was the beginning of my story? What's the middle? What's the end? How do I put these pieces together in a coherent autobiographical memory? That's strategic retrieval. That would result, quite possibly I think, in an effort to psychologically please or appease the minister. Now I'm not arguing that he consciously does so. I don't know. But I think on, on some level, conscious or unconscious, in some way or other, when Joseph writes that first autobiography, I think he's doing it in a way that he hopes will not get him hurt or rejected again. If that's the case, that explains why this account has emphasis on things that Joseph has in common with the Methodist minister. It's, uh, many observers have noted it sounds like a generic Methodist conversion experience of being convicted of sins, receiving Christ's forgiveness. There's de-emphasis on things that Joseph and the Methodist minister don't share, especially by 1832, when the account is written. God and Christ are separate beings, etc. There's no creeds are abominable to God and all their professors are corrupt in this account. There's no emphasis on persecution or opposition from Satan. It's an account that's true, in a sense but not true enough if you're Joseph Smith. Now, remember that, um, not in an objective way, but in a subjective way, a memory is true if it's true to yourself, if it's true to your present. There's a ton of evidence showing that people remember their past in ways that are consistent with their present. If your views of civil rights or, um, or gay rights or something have changed over the course of your life, uh, there's a lot of evidence that shows that you will remember yourself as you are now, even if yourself uh, earlier didn't share the same views. Okay. We remember ourselves as we are in the present. And um, that's an important thing to consider here about Joseph Smith. His his account is true, but it's not really true to his 1832 present. If I'm right, if my theory is right, he's, he's obeying a commandment of the Lord that he finds difficult to obey in the first place, writing his history. So there's that problem. And when he does it, he's got to write something that's <laughs> going to appease the, the authority of that minister. That minister represents a lot of the, the, the culture. The approval of his culture is at stake in that minister's acceptance or rejection. So on the one hand, that's a, a, con- a set of concerns he's got, and on the other, he's got to be true to his 1832 self. He is the prophet of the church. He's just been made president. Prof- he's got a first presidency now, right? He's received DNC 76 and DNC 84. He's he's way beyond simple uh, Protestant theology at this point in his revelations and uh, I believe that that 1832 autobiography he gives us is unsatisfying to him for all these conflicting reasons, right? Why do I believe that? Because there is zero evidence that he shares it with anybody, right? Frederick Williams writes it, and then Joseph picks up the pen halfway down the page and finishes it, and then there's no evidence that anybody else ever sees it. He's doing it to furnish it to Oliver Cowdery and John Whitmer, those who've been taking on the responsibility of writing the church history, right? And yet neither one of them shows any evidence anywhere that they even know it exists. Joseph is the only one who can supply them with the story before they came around, before they came on the scene. Joseph's the only one who can tell the story of the first vision. So Cowdery and Whitmer look to him for that information. Oliver tells us this in his, his letters, his historical letters that he publishes in the church newspaper. And when he comes to the spaces in the history where Joseph has to be the source of information, he just leaves them blank. He doesn't have the information that he needs from Joseph Smith. So we know this document exists. We know it exists by the summer, fall of 1832. And there's no evidence that Joseph shares it with anybody else. It seems to me that the best explanation for that is he doesn't like it. It just doesn't seem quite right. It's just not an adequate explanation or description of what he experienced or, what, or how it fits, how the past and the present fit together. I think in trying to not get hurt by the cultural authorities, like the Methodist minister, he writes something that's not very consistent with his sense of himself in 1832. Am I making any sense? Lots of conflict in his mind about himself, about his experiences and the nature of them, if my theory is accurate. I'm going to assume awareness, at least, if not knowledge of that 1832 account. Is that a bad assumption? Do you know that there's an 1832 autobiography? It's six pages long. It's at the Joseph Smith Papers website, josephsmithpapers.org. It's on your Gospel Library app, if you've got that. It's (laughs) in in the history part. I'm, am I assuming too much? Do you want me to to tell you what's in it? Do I need to Okay.
0: Summarize briefly.
2: All right, we'll do. I'll show it to you here for a second, but I I better not get too bogged down on on it. Yeah, here it is. This is a picture of it. Uh, what it, it, it starts on, just on the top of page 1, bottom of page 1. This is page 2. Last line of page 1 says uh, at about the age of 12 years, my mind becomes seriously impressed with regard to the all important concerns for the welfare of my immortal soul, which led me to searching the scriptures, believing as I was taught that they contain the Word of God. And I read the scriptures and I watched people of different denominations, and they did not square. They didn't match up. People did not adorn their, their walk uh, with a God, with a, adorn their profession of Christianity with a godly walk and conversation. And this led me to mourn for my sins and for the sins of the world, he says. This was a grief to my soul. And so I turn to the scriptures, he says, I'm worried about what to do and how to find the truth. And in this uh, version of the story, he, he comes by studying the scriptures to the tentative conclusion, at least, that none of the churches around are matching the New Testament version. So what in the world do I do? I go to the woods and I offer prayer. But in this account, Joseph says, I go to the woods, to the wilderness, I offer a, a prayer. The Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. And he said unto me, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. And then the Savior continues to talk about apostasy, about redemption through the atonement of Christ, about his coming judgment on the world. And at the end of paraphrasing and quoting the Savior, Joseph says, and doesn't even This is like two sentences in this whole six pages and no quote marks. uh, And at the end of quoting the Savior, Joseph says, I was filled with love. My soul was filled with love. And for many days I could rejoice with great joy, but I could find none who would believe the heavenly vision. Okay. So that's the earliest account of the first vision It is beautiful document. It's kind of the flavor of the month right now Um, has been for a good while. Uh, for all kinds of interesting and complicated reasons. That's his earliest autobiography, a strategic memory, an intentional effort to remember my story. Okay? And uh, I believe it is. it works the way it does and says what it says because Joseph's 1832 present demands that he document his first revelation and doing so is going to be difficult and it's going to hurt potentially. It hurt the first time he told it He's worried about it hurting again, so he tells it in a way that seems safe. And in doing so, he thinks, ah, this stinks. It's just not right. It's not it. It's, ah, let throw it away. I right? put it in the drawer, and it doesn't come out of the drawer for a long time. It comes across the plains in Janetta Richards' trunk, but it sits in the, on the shelves of the Church History Department until 1965. Somebody you raise your Do you think hand. that he wrote
0: that intentionally or even out that he remembered? Or...
2: I don't know that it was intentional at all. I'm not claiming that it was. I think it's rather more likely that it's not... He I don't think he sits down and thinks, now let's see, it really hurt when I got rejected by that Methodist minister, so what could I do to not get so hurt this time by cultural authorities like him? I don't think it's anywhere near that conscious. I think it's more... Likely a, an unconscious kind of thing. I don't know if he recognizes that he's doing that And I'm not positive. I'm right But that is my best explanation for why it says what it says and why it works the way it does please
1: When he says that he couldn't find any he says I, I found none who would believe me it Sounds like he tried more than once
2: <clears throat> Maybe I wouldn't necessarily assume that it's possible. He did I right assume. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't presume to know either way without better evidence. I don't know if he tells mom and dad and they say, Come on, Joseph. I don't know if I don't know that he tells anybody except the one person he tells us that he tells, and that's the Methodist minister. So you might be right, but I'm not sure. Please. You
0: mentioned also you threw it out that other people were going into the woods and getting heavenly manifestations. This isn't unique to Joseph at the time?
2: That's correct. Most famously, Charles Finney, right, who goes on to become one of the foremost revivalists. We sometimes say Joseph lived in the burned-over district. He didn't really. The burned-over district becomes burned over about 10, 15 years later because of the revival efforts of Charles Finney, a Presbyterian preacher, who uh, famously, in Adams County, New York, in 1820, goes into the woods and prays. Doesn't have a first vision in the woods, but comes back to his law office and sees the Savior there. Uh, over time, Finney will backpedal. He'll he'll say, well, I sort of saw the Savior, or at least I felt his love. Right. So over time, Joseph Smith gets more and more adamant. I knew it. I knew God knew it. I could not deny it. That's the trajectory of Joseph's. Charles Finney's uh, descriptions of his experience are go in the opposite direction. That partly probably, probably tells us a lot to do about whether one, whether you're going to stick as a Presbyterian minister in the mainstream or not. And Joseph's not right; he's on the far fringe. Uh, so I think I think that best explains the different emphases they put on their experiences. But the great um, piece on this is Richard Bushman's terrific article, The Visionary World of Joseph Smith, um, which uh, brand new. there, there typically have been just three critiques of the first vision over time. Lots of different people articulating these three, but just three. And I won't go into them here tonight, but just recently a fourth one came online, and that is that Joseph just plagiarized it. People envisioning God and Christ in the Woods was so prevalent, he was reading all these things, and he just made his version up based on them. I don't think that explains it at all, but that's, the, the argument can only be made because there's evidence of other people. Were there other uh, written yeah. uh, yes. texts sure. by yes. other people? Yeah. And this well, this, this well, is not unique is to his to time and place. What's
1: that? The big difference between him and the others is that he produced this big, thick book. Right. No one else came close.
2: Right, right. I would say that, too. Uh, I would say that, too. So... Um, does that answer your question or not?
0: I do have one question. So if, if you said this was written in like 28, then that would be more logical in one sense that he organizes the church in 1830 and he's galvanizing and inspiring people. Uh, so would he not be talking about that reality of God and Jesus? Are you, are you saying no? So Jim Allen... So where, uh, where was he in that process in communicating with the flock?
2: Jim Allen, the great scholar of the first vision, in my judgment, uh, wrote a really important essay back in the 60s, and he showed that early church records and late reminiscences show no evidence that Joseph is talking about the first vision in the early years of the church. Now, I, my research has shown that there is more evidence than Jim found, but I, I, I was standing on his shoulders to find that stuff. Um, <laughs> So it is not the case that Joseph is not talking about it at all. But it is the case that it has nothing to do, as far as any of the converts are concerned, with the organization of the church. And the earliest, I wrote my master's thesis on what the first missionaries taught. None of them that I could find teach the first vision. That, that term, first vision, the, you first see it in the historical record in 1849, right? Throughout the decade of the 30s, missionaries don't go say, Joseph Smith had a first vision, like the way we do today. They said, the covenant's been broken, the Bible prophesies it will be restored, and Israel will be gathered in anticipation of the Savior's saying, coming. Here's a book that shows that it's been restored. So that is the uh, work of the first missionaries. Right? It's a widespread assumption that the first vision, because it's primary today, was primary Ever since Joseph walked out of the woods, that's not the case. Thank you. It is fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating. All right. So what would happen if Joseph, three years later, age 29, wasn't trying to write autobiography? He wasn't even thinking, today I'm going to talk about the first vision. Uh, He was just conversing with an eccentric guy from the east who just comes into town and says, I wanted to come talk to you. Uh, uh, that you claim to be a prophet, so do I I have these prophetic credentials I thought maybe you and I could uh, talk to each other maybe we should team up with each other Joseph is as curious about this guy as Robert Matthias is his name as he is about Joseph so they spend the better part of, of three days together talking and sort of plumbing the depths of each other and in that process, just spontaneously Joseph tells them about his first vision it says, let me tell you about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. The first thing that happened then was I was worried about my soul. I was distressed and I was perplexed, and I knew it was important to, to find the answer to my questions. <laughs> so I read the Bible. It said, if you lack wisdom, ask God. It said, knock and it'll be opened. I went to the woods to pray. My tongue was, was swollen. It stuck in my mouth. I desperately called out to God, prayed again. I saw a pillar of Light, it filled me with joy and unspeakable. I saw a personage, and he revealed another personage. And he said, Joseph, your sins are forgiven. And uh, that's about it. This This one is short. It's by far the fastest paced. I think that has a lot to do with Joseph speaking it, not writing it, right? He's not sitting down and deliberately and haltingly in his in his frustrated way trying to write out an autobiography he's just telling it and in that process he tells a fast-paced and a really dramatic story okay and that's the 1835 account we know it because uh his scribe warren Parrish caught it in his and has put it in his journal entry so it's the november 9th 1835 entry in joseph smith's journal is this telling of the first vision what would happen well it would be a spontaneous retrieval, not a strategic one. And if my theory holds, it's the strategic retrievals where Joseph uh, has, uh, at some level, the need to respond to the Methodist minister. Right? It's when he says, now let's see, how does my history go? And, and he works. that's the cue, and he works to recall it. And one of the very first things he remembers is the pain of being rejected by the minister. And everything else then sort of responds to that. But in this case, if he's just spontaneously remembering, I don't think that factors in. There's no evidence in this one that he's responding to the minister, at least as far as I can, can tell it. So a spontaneous retrieval in this, this extemporaneous telling. Um, and I, then I hit the high points of it. Any questions about the 1835 account?
1: Well, what, uh, what else is the main difference between that and the earlier one other than not responding to the minister?
2: The main difference is that in 1832, there's no mention of, a, of a opposing power, right? A satanic force that tries to keep him from praying. In 1835, that's the first time we see that uh, his tongue swells into the roof of his mouth. He tries to pray but can't and he really has to exert himself to overcome this uh, force of antagonism before he can pray. That's the main difference. And two personages? Yeah, but but don't be too sure that there are not two personages in 1832. Yeah, People yeah. have been too quick to that assume, conclusion, yeah. right? The 1832 says, I saw the Lord. Uh, the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. Now, we might, one of the big problems we have is we do not listen to him well <laughs> enough. Okay, He is really working hard to describe what defies all description. And we don't listen to him well enough. And I think he would frustratedly just pull at his hair and say, Ah, I can't really say what I mean, and you guys aren't listening to what I'm trying to say. So I think when he says, The Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. If we read that in light of all the accounts, what he's saying is, God opened the heavens and showed me Christ. And Christ said to me, Joseph, my son, your sins are forgiven. Why read it that way? Because the 1835 and uh, the 1843 secondary account and another one, uh, the, the 1844 secondary account, they all tell it that way. One being appears first, reveals the other one. So why not read the 1832 in that light? Instead of, right, you've heard, maybe you've heard, I hope you've heard Richard Bushman talk about the hermeneutics of suspicion. Right? The, the choice to interpret historical uh, people with great uh, skepticism. And Richard has, has long said, "I use the hermeneutics of trust. I believe people, generally speaking, in, in the past. I believe people are authentically relating their experience as best they can. And so he listens to Joseph Smith uh, with a hermeneutic, a choice to interpret Joseph trustingly. And when you do that, you don't automatically have hostility to the 1830s. You don't think, boy, he can't even tell a consistent story between 1832 and 1835. What a dummy. Or what a conspirator. I think it's much more likely that he's telling a consistent story between 1832 and 35, as far as he's concerned, as best he can. And so I read the 32 most likely as referring to two divine beings, both as Lord. He gets better at it in 1835, I saw one personage, he says, in 35. This is the 32 account. I saw one personage who then revealed another one. He's he's better, he's clearer in his articulation in 1835 than
0: he was in 1832. <clears throat> Please. Thank you for sh- sharing that facsimile of 32. Do you have a facsimile of
2: 35? Yeah. Okay. What does it look like? Uh, let me see if I can... It's in someone else's handwriting because <laughs> it's his scribe, right? Yeah, it's Warren Parrish's.
0: If it's not handy, that's okay. You
2: can go on. Well, that might have ruined the projector, but it's on my screen right now. <laughs> uh, go to Joseph Smith Papers. Oh, sure. Sorry about that. All right, go on. You're doing great. For, <laughs> if you stuff. if you put into Google First Vision accounts, <laughs> sure, I
0: can. You'll get it. That, that's fine. Or you can buy I it well. that. <laughs>
2: and it's also in your Gospel Library app. I have a question for you. Great. Uh,
0: Twenty fourteen. I can understand. Uh, Feeling the hurt from rejection from the pastor. Uh-huh. But by the time he's 26, he's gone to, you said he just got through being tart and feathered. So I would think his fear of uh, the pastor would have been long gone by, the replaced by more current experiences. Maybe, but
2: yeah, quite possibly. You might be right. But it might also be even Attitude. worse, right? Uh, they're going to drag me out of my house again, and beat me up. Right. I, I don't know if you ever escaped that fear. And I think it's most likely that he's a jumble, conflicted feelings, right?
1: Oh, that he up. be preached like the next day. Yeah,
2: right. He wasn't shy. No, not at all. And you see that most pronounced in the canonized account. Right? You see the defiant, full-grown Joseph Smith in the 1838-39 account that's excerpted in the Pearl of Great Price. But, but if that's the case, it just goes to show what I'm trying to argue here—that that you can understand each of them in terms of sort of his reaction, his response to what he's what he's experienced in his past and what his present situation is. All right. When did it come into the story where it says uh, join none of them? That's in the 1838-39 account. All right. Let me—I'll just uh, carry on here, and it'll come up when it comes up. What would happen if Joseph Smith, at age 33, started writing autobiography after being driven from Ohio by enemies, but then before he can write more than a few pages, I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to, every time I uh, project or, or, you know, tell it to to do the display, it kicks me out, so we're just going to do it like this. Before he can write more than a few pages, he's jailed in a cramped, cold, stinking dungeon cell in Missouri while his wife and children and followers flee a governor's order to the state militia to exterminate or drive the saints out of the state. What would happen if he started dictating his history again months later on the other side of the Mississippi River, having finally escaped Missouri hell? In other words, what would happen if he wrote his history after the worst, most persecuted year of his life? Right? We already know what's going to happen if this is an intent to write an autobiography. It's going to be a strategic memory. The cue for the memory is going to be, where does my story begin? And in this present, that story begin. He says, now, this has been the per- most persecuted year of my life. When did that persecution begin? Oh, yeah, I remember. A few days after, a few days after my vision. I was in company with one of the preachers, and I thought he should have been nice to me, and he was not. He was mean. He rejected me. He he treated me with great contempt. It was shocking how contemptuous he was toward me, right? That's the memory. It's a vivid memory. It's a factual memory, right? Notice when you read that canonized account again, the one that's in the Pearl of Great Price, notice how um, different the factual memory is from the interpretive memory. I'll say a little bit more about that here. Factual memory is things like, I read James 1 and 5. Uh, I went to the woods on a beautiful, clear day early in the spring of 1820. I kneeled down. I prayed. Uh, I saw two, two beings. This is what they said. Factual memory. But interpretive memory is the kind you accumulate over time. It's the part where I was talking about what it meant not to Joseph at the time, but what it meant over time. This is the part where you say things like, I have thought a lot then and since that I was like Paul before Agrippa. Or serious reflection, right? You see these words uh, that Joseph says, It seemed like this, or it seems like that. It seems like I've been persecuted from the time I was an infant. Right? And people have thought, well, I've checked the archives and there's no evidence that Joseph was persecuted as an infant. That's because he wasn't persecuted as an infant. That's his interpretive memory. That's not the, he's not saying it was a fact that when I was five, people beat me up because I was going to have a vision later on. Uh, he says, you know what it seems like? It seems like I've been persecuted my whole life, especially after Missouri. That's what it feels like. That's how Joseph interprets his past. And that's what we get in the, in the canonized account. We get a ton, a boatload of interpretive memories, the richest of all the accounts in terms of interpretive memory, that's partly because lots of time has passed. I can look back and read meaning into the experience that I wasn't capable of doing before. And it's partly because the it's not just that time has passed, but the experiences since have got him hypersensitive to a persecuted feeling. And as you read that one next time, notice how peppered it is with the words persecution, persecute. Bitter persecution. Hot persecution. Notice how it starts. Owing to the many reports put in circulation by evil disposed and designing people. He's spitting those words out. He's defiant. I knew it. I knew God knew it. I could not deny it, right? And this, he's a full-grown respondent now to that minister, isn't he? And he's saying, I don't care what you say. I don't care uh, what pressure you put on me. I reject the, the Protestant culture, I'm not trying to please you anymore. I know what happened to me in the woods. That's the flavor of the 1838 and 39 account. Okay? No wonder it says, God said their creeds are an abomination, and their professors are corrupt, right? It's not pulling any punches in this one. He is really upset in that account. You can hear it, you can feel it when you read it and if you understand the present that gives us that past that helps you understand why it has the feeling that it does why it's so um, characterized by persecution well what would happen if uh, a couple years later joseph's looking at that document in a different setting he's living peacefully in nauvoo He's surrounded by faithful followers who are gathering by the thousands. He's beginning to carry out, along with their cooperation, a vision for a new temple. Fawning state legislators have given Nauvoo a protective charter. And Missouri is fading into the distance and Carthage is not yet on the horizon. If you're Joseph Smith, you look at that document and you say, Wow, I was really upset back then. Yikes. (laughs) So, you make a new draft. And we just found this a few years ago. Really very cool document. We call it the Circa 1841 Fair Copy. It is the 1838-39 memory, the one that you're familiar with most likely. But it is different in this way. That defiant opening about evil disposed and designing persecutors is cut. It's all gone. And it just starts, I was born in Sharon, Vermont. It includes the factual memory of being rejected by the Methodist minister, but it cuts almost all of that interpretive memory that follows after it. That memory that is so dependent on that moment in time, that present in 1839 when Joseph is feeling the persecution. A couple years later, that present is gone. That intensity of feeling is not there, so you cut that part out of it. Um, You put some new stuff in that's much more, um, you know, much more even-toned. You get rid of things like bitter and hot persecution. You cut the interpretive memory of being like Paul, right? That's all gone. The parts I like the most, (laughs) the really bitter, upset, (laughs) uh, defiant parts, uh, they're all gone. What would happen if Joseph, at age 36, received a letter from the editor of Chicago newspaper or a historian from Philadelphia asking him kindly if he would furnish them with his story so they could accurately inform their readers. What a delightful twist (laughs) for him, right? He would give them a matter-of-fact, straightforward, succinct account. We know this. This is what we call the Wentworth letter. This is the same document that gives us the articles of faith, right? Uh, This would be less emotional, more logical, not written, to a Methodist Revival preacher, or, or in defiance of a Methodist Revival preacher. It's written to the educated readers of the Chicago Democrat newspaper or, or uh, Isaac Rupp's uh, History of Ecclesiastical Organizations in the United States. You throw in a little Latin into this one, if you're Joseph Smith. You do some PR in this one. You, you, instead of saying, all their creeds are an abomination, their professors are corrupt, You say that the heavenly beings told me that all religious denominations are believing in incorrect doctrines, that none of them was acknowledged of his church and kingdom. Same thing, but in different tone, different flavor to it. So I believe the the present, the knowledge of Joseph's memories being a combination of what happened in the grove and his present, when he remembers, I believe that is the best explanation for why we get variations on the vision over time in his accounts. And I think it's a really, really good idea to study all of them in context. I don't think it's a very good idea to harmonize them. I don't think it's a very good idea to harmonize the Gospels, because Mark means to do one thing, and Luke means to do something else, and Matthew means to do something else, and John means a whole other thing. And when you put them together as if they can just be harmonized. I think they would say, what are you doing? The whole reason I wrote that is because I didn't like his version or at least it, did, it didn't do what I was, was intending to do. And the same thing with these memories. It's not, I don't think you can harmonize them without sort of doing violence to them. They're each a different memory. And, and some people spend a lot of time and in ink trying to figure out which one's accurate, or which one's more accurate. How in the world are they gonna figure that out, right? Some people say, "Well, if it's closer to the actual event, it's more accurate." How do they know that? There's no good uh, scientific evidence for that. Okay? This, the me- memory is way trickier than we want to. We want to impose order on it. It is not very orderly memory. So much better to just appreciate each one of these memories for their own sake. What can it tell us about how Joseph experienced the vision at the time? What can it tell us about how he experienced the vision over time? Let's not ask more of these memories than they can do. Let's, let's ask of them maybe better questions than we had before. I am really, really thrilled that we have the best documented vision of God ever in the historical record as the first vision of Joseph Smith, right? We'd be thrilled. Historians would be thrilled if they had this kind of evidence or any other event of this, this magnitude. It's not something to be afraid of. It's not something to uh, ignore. It's something to devour, to digest, to internalize and and appreciate and learn from. And I better uh, wrap that up at that point, and I'll be happy if we have time to take uh, questions or talk a little bit more about that to do so. Is that, yeah. is that all right? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Please. Um, President Nelson has made it known that First Vision is going to be pretty iconic during this next year. How in-depth do you think the church is going to go in this kind of interpretation?
2: Well, my guess is, uh, yeah, given what President Nelson has said about celebrating the bicentennial of the First Vision, how in-depth do I think the church will go into interpreting it? Did I accurately represent that? I think what will happen is that we will celebrate the first vision, that will focus primarily on the canonized account of it, based, judging based on how President Nelson presented it, but, but we will probably see a more openness to studying the other accounts than maybe we ever have before, based again on the way President Nelson presented it, and on the materials that the Church has provided. So the, the church itself has given us the best resources for studying these accounts. The Joseph Smith Papers website has all these documents front and center, um, really uh, well presented. They're very accessible. Again, they're in the Gospel Library app now. Uh, they're not hidden, right? <laughs> we used to be quite determined to keep a lid on them. Um, I've told that story in my new, my new book about how, you know, in the middle half, middle part of the 20th century, we kept a lid on these documents. Can't do that in information age. And so the church has done a about-face on that point and become the biggest voice of, of getting them out there. Now, President Nelson um, does not want to give, I know this for a fact, he does not want to give members of the church the idea that they're not, as faithful, if they don't own all the volumes of the Joseph Smith papers or devour them, he, he doesn't want to give them. The, he do, he's worried about the economics of it, for one thing. Right? He's worried about every saint on the planet, including the ones who are trying to feed them themselves and their families, and he doesn't want to give um, the idea that you got to have this stuff uh, if you're going to be a, a covenant keeper. So he's careful to say it's available, it's out there, but not to make people feel obligated to to know all this stuff or to buy it or or own it. My guess is what he said in October is a good gauge of what we can expect. That is, study whatever you want, he said, right? Design your own plan. But the one he explicitly mentioned was the Pearl Great One and the Pearl Great Prize. I felt really encouraged to hear what he had to say because I felt like uh, was, it was um, open to the kind of stuff I'm interested in talking about and doing. Please. I believe you
0: went over four or five primary accounts?
2: Yeah, four primary accounts, but I gave I gave you one of them twice. I gave you two versions of one of them I, I talked about.
0: And you mentioned secondary accounts. Do, are yeah. they how credible are those and do they offer any insights that are valuable?
2: They're very credible. For what they are right they're their secondary accounts. so you read them with that consciousness and they're very credible Uh, let me say it this way if i'm asking them to tell me exactly what happened in the grove i don't have any way of telling how credible they are i don't know and neither does anybody else so don't believe anybody who tells you that but if i'm asking orson pratt's account to tell me what orson pratt understood from Joseph Smith and what he wanted to convey then it's incredibly credible how is that
0: any valuable information that you think is Absolutely and I'm curious if you have any idea how long that vision was
2: I don't know it's a good question hard to know from from the evidence available how long it was and I'm not even sure it could be measured in time in a way right I'm not I'm not positive how that all works but every one of the accounts is precious and has knowledge that we want. So Orson Pratt's is the longest and richest of the secondary accounts. He wrote this as a missionary tract. He was a missionary in Scotland and published this there, and it it was soon all over the globe. Uh, We have evidence that uh, missionaries in the London Missionary Society have some of these pamphlets in the South Pacific within a couple of years. It's all over Europe. Right? It, this spreads around the globe. It's really quite something. And we can tell that Orson knows what he knows, primarily from Joseph himself. They cross paths uh, in the Delaware River Valley uh, as Joseph is going back and forth to Washington, D.C. to petition the government for redress from Missouri wrongs, and Orson is on his way to Scotland. They spend some time together, and Orson comes out of that with some very intimate knowledge of the first vision. So his account is wonderful. You you can't ultimately tell what exactly came from Joseph and what Orson might have imagined or contributed on his own. But when Joseph does the Wentworth letter, he borrows lines from Orson's account. He likes it so much, he says, yeah, Orson says it better than me. Let's just use some of those lines. So there's a lot of intertextuality between Orson and Joseph in their various accounts. Uh, Orson Hyde uh, Copies, nearly just copies Orson Pratt's On his uh, way to Palestine He publishes that in German In Germany Or his way back I think Or some of each uh, Let's see, the others One is a sh- relatively short jo- Diary entry From, um, help me if you remember this Levi Richards uh, he, In a- 1843 He hears Joseph talk Well, there's a a main sermon that he listens to, and then Joseph just stands up after it and says, I had a first vision once. It was very cool. And so it's a very brief account, but Levi Richards grabbed that and just uh, scribbled about five lines in his journal about it. So not a full, rich, well-developed account. Then there's an 1843 uh, account in a Philadelphia newspaper, and this one is pretty cool. Uh, This is the one where we get the idea that Joseph Smith left his his axe in a stump uh, and that's what he went back the next day to the place where he left his axe and that's where he prayed in the woods this one is another fast moving one it's joseph telling it orally rather than trying to write it down and every time he does that it's a it's a faster pace and it's a it's a more confident right he's not a confident writer as much as he is a confident speaker about it this is well worth your attention and then finally one of the most beautiful ones is um, Alexander Nyber's journal entry for the 24th day of May, 1844. he tells about Joseph telling him the story. And this one's got some details in it that are not anywhere else, including how um, the the Methodist connection, right? Joseph tells us in his canonized account, the manuscript history account from 1838-39, he he tells us, um, I was partial to the Methodists. I had some desire to be affiliated with them but it's in the NIBER account where we really get a sense for what he means by that. Uh, Joseph there says, my mom and some of my siblings attended the Methodist meetings. I attended when I could, and I, had some, I, had, I wanted to feel and shout like the rest of the Methodist converts, but I could feel nothing. Um, so all of those secondary accounts and primary accounts are at josephsmithpapers.org. They're presented there in great, with great integrity. Right? You can look at the actual images of the documents in really good resolution. There are transcriptions right next to them to compare uh, terrific historical introductions and rich footnotes. Um, I, would, I would read all of them and appreciate all of them. So let me just reiterate, don't ask them to tell you stuff that they can't tell you. Right? Niebuhr wasn't there in the Grove. There's stuff he doesn't know. But he was there listening to Joseph Smith tell the story in Nauvoo. So he can tell you what he heard Joseph say in Nauvoo in 1844. And that's all you can ask. You can't ask historical documents to tell you more than they were they were capable of doing. And as long as we do that, we'll be, we'll be good historians. Please. Yeah, throughout your remarks, you keep referring to the, the version from
1: 1839. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not in your book that I can find anyway.
2: I keep saying 39, I mean I mean 1838, 39. What we know is that Joseph Smith started his manuscript history in 1838, and then the whole Missouri problem interrupted it, and he went back to it in 1839. We do not have the 1838 document. We only know it exists because internally, the, the 1839 document says this, is, this was written in 1838. So we have a, a second draft, that refers to, I gave uh, Moroni the plates back, and he has them in his possession till this day, which I can't remember the exact date, but it's like May 1838. But that document that says that was written in 1839. So we we know that there was a draft, but we don't have that original draft. We just have, so I keep saying 1838-39 because it's an 1838-39 production, interrupted by imprisonment and liberty. Please.
0: One thing that you kind of discuss in the podcast is um, the fact that he had this vision and that was quite some time uh-huh. before he even started to seemingly consider to write it down. Right. Um, and I thought some of your comments along that line were quite interesting. Um, and one of them specifically indicating that as this teenager, He didn't realize the long-term effect that this moment in time was going to have.
2: I think that's very likely, right? So so notice that uh, as a teenager and, and with the event, he comes out of the grove with a lot of factual memory, right? I read this passage of Scripture. I walked to this spot. I knelt down. I said these words, pillar of light, factual memory. But over time, he's going to have more capability of interpreting those facts. And you may, we may question, well, does he interpret them accurately or not? I, I don't know. I can't tell you that. But I can tell you for sure that the more time and subsequent experience transpires, the more he's going to interpret the facts. He's going to read meaning and purpose and stuff into them that was unavailable to him that day. So that day, I think he comes out of the woods Interpreting the facts as I just had a full-on Methodist conversion again And a pretty good one at that I'm going to go tell
0: <laughs>
2: So yeah, that, I think, so is, is the interpretation that's available But, you know, over time I'm the prophet of the last dispensation This led to a church The, the Church of Jesus Christ all, those, all, that, all that meaning you and I read into it today That wasn't available at the time we can see it now because of the, the distance that we have. There's nothing wrong with that. Some, some people would tell you that's ahistoricist, that's right? You, you're doing violence to history when you do that. I don't know if that makes any sense at all to me. Everybody does it. We read meaning into our past. That's, I'm, curious, I'm interested in analyzing that, but to say that you can't do it just seems a little bit silly to me. Everybody does that. I do it. I do it with my patriarchal blessing.
0: Uh, The church has made a
2: video, it's six minutes
0: long, of the first vision. Uh, It's just been in the past couple of years. I understand that possibly it's presented in the church history library. Do you know the one I mean? I sure do. (laughs) Well, then you're anticipating my question. Did you have any role in, uh, you know, did you have any input? I had a minor
2: role in it. Yeah, the people who were making it were nice enough to ask my opinion. (laughs) <laughs> and I freely gave it uh, And I really quite like what they did I, I have lots of critiques of it There's not, I don't love everything about it But I love the fact that the first thing you hear is There are nine accounts of the first vision And this is about them Right? We have buried that in the past The, the 1976 movie incorporates several accounts But it doesn't tell anybody it's doing it Right, the, 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 the textbook for Religion 341 at BYU uses the four primary accounts, but doesn't tell anybody it's doing it. Even the footnotes are hard to decipher. That's not good. It's much better to say what you know and how you know it. It's better to be transparent and open about knowledge, sources of knowledge. And so it's not a good idea to, um, you know, to, to not tell people where this knowledge comes from, all that does is opens them up to being blindsided by somebody who, who's going to use that those facts as a, a beating stick, right? And so much better to start a movie by saying, there are nine accounts of the first vision, and that is very cool, and this movie is based on them, and you should go out the door of this theater and read them, because they're all right there, right? That's That's what has happened. That's the difference in the new... Museum exhibit from. Can
0: you see um, that online somewhere? Yeah,
2: absolutely. It's all online. Ask of God is the name of the movie. You can yeah. watch it online. You can read the accounts online. It's terrific. Um,
0: so I really like it. I really enjoy it. I really love how it's very
2: understated. Uh huh. You know. Um, it doesn't try to, you know, win you over with emotion. You're right. It's just understated. And- And I think, for
0: me personally, it may be one of the best, if not the best, media presentations that the church has made. Now, having said that, you won't hurt my feelings if I asked you to give at least a little bit of your critique of what you you might tweak about
2: it. I don't know. I, uh, I don't like the giant stump that's obviously very old right right in the middle of the of the scene is an old stump which i mean they've, they've got they filmed it in the grove so and i'm i'm per- guessing that they probably didn't want them the to cut a fresh stump thing. yeah exactly right so right away that cat catches my attention so minor things you know yeah okay Minor okay. Stuff. sister
0: so now thanks to all of this and to your great presentation we have more than just the Wizard of Oz version of, uh, you know, the first vision uh-huh. that process, and you have kind of sprinkled um, your comments along the way, and I'm, I'm just uh, an old woman and would love it if, if you just summarize again. Uh, wh- what I love about all of this is it says to me a whole lot more about the Lord and Joseph Smith than the actual first vision and and um, the evolution of this teenager, uh-huh. for instance, you know. Um, if you had to sum up, you know, going from being this teenage boy to a 30-some-odd you know, uh, martyr, what would you say, you know, were the, the main evolutions in his own growth as he did digest this?
2: Yeah. Wow, what a great question. <coughs> what, are the, what are the main contours of Joseph's growth? Well near the end of his life he says as you may well know i'm not going to get the words exactly right here but he says essentially if i could back out i would but i cannot back out i have no doubt of the truth and what i want to say about that is on the face of it it's true right just just exactly what it says is what it means but there's more to it than that jose i believe the lord handpicks joseph smith because he's resilient not because he's perfect. He's got a lot of defects, but he's got a lot of positive attributes. And the Lord picks him, I think, because he's incredibly resilient. And he is dogged. He is persevering. You cannot keep him down. You can put him in a stinking pit in Liberty, Missouri. You can tar him. You can beat him. You can ruin New Jerusalem. right think of all the setbacks (laughs) all the setbacks and he does not ever quit he doesn't give up he doesn't lose his faith right if anybody could have i mean he confronts the problem of suffering in liberty jail how long lord how long are you going to watch amanda barnes smith's family be butchered how long are you going to watch your daughters get raped by these soldiers And not do anything about it. And how long do I have to sit in this stinking hole while my wife and children are driven out of here? So he confronts the the classical problem of suffering there and gets a really profound answer, right? All these things will give you experience and will be for your good. And so he he reveals this uh, plan that I think is obviously superior to any other theology I've ever seen. Uh, and it it causes him enormous hardship. His life is hard, and Emma's life is hard because uh, of embracing the gospel. He could have walked away and and had a, a fine farming life or whatever else, and no problem. But he embraces a life of hardship, and he never, ever backs down from it. And it's him being true to what he learned real early on and then learned over time. So that's what I love about him is I can't back out. I have no doubt of the truth. Now, Oliver Cowdery had no doubt of the truth. Sidney Rigdon, David Whitmer, right? Who's who had no doubt of the truth, but they backed out. And Joseph Smith is not like them because he did not back out when it was cost everything. So I I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but some people think I have this sort of um I don't know what to say here. I I mean, you can tell I admire Joseph Smith, but I do not worship him. I don't think of him as I mean, if he were here, he'd have body odor, right? He'd, he'd have manure on his boots. Um and I there, there's all kinds of things about him that are just ordinary and normal and mortal and some things about him that we might find distasteful. I mean, some of us would not like his personality or or whatever. It was, I have a hard time with some of his revelations. Um, So I don't, I'm not a worshiper of Joseph Smith, but Joseph Smith gives me Christ. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ is what I get from him, and that's why his life is worth studying. So let me finish by saying that the greatest thing about the first vision to me is not to learn that God and Christ are separate and embodied, right? That's the point we seem to think is sometimes the most important thing. Who cares if they're separate and embodied, if, if they're the God of Jonathan Edwards. <coughs> Remember his famous sermon, 1741 sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, when he said, God abhors you. God abhors you. And then there's that beautiful line in our hymn, joseph sought the god of love joseph was worried whether god abhorred him is the god is the god of the presbyterians real or is the god of love real and he found the answer to that by asking in faith in the woods and because he was a teenager convicted of his sins who found the god of love remember my soul was filled with love and for many days i could rejoice with great joy he said the vision filled me with joy unspeakable, he said. Because of that, I feel like I can approach that God and that's why it's worth studying to me. So, those are my thoughts on it. Thanks very much for your time and attention. Have a great night.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dialogue
1: Podcast in honor of our 50th anniversary Jubilee. If you enjoy listening, Please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.